It's time for the LaneCast with Montana's very own Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland, your voice for agriculture. Hey, hey everyone, welcome back to the LaneCast. I hope everyone's day is going well, and if you're joining us for the first time, welcome, and make sure to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple device, on Apple Podcast applications, and also on Google Play on your Android devices. We are talking all things agriculture, and for ranchers in the western United States, they are very dependent on public lands. And since 1968, we are coming up on 50 years. The Public Lands Council has actively represented the cattle and sheep producers who hold public grazing permits across the nation. And there's quite a lot of challenges that come with grazing on public lands and being a part of the multi-purpose use of those lands. Today, our guest is Ethan Lane, the Executive Director of the Public Lands Council and the NCBA Federal Lands, and we are going to be talking about sage-grouse plans, feral horses, and maybe we will have time to talk about the American Prairie Reserve and how they want to make changes to their public lands grazing allotments to better fit their way of thinking and their agenda. So we will be discussing that and much more with Ethan Lane with the Public Lands Council. But the Montana Stock Growers Association first would like to invite everyone to join them for their mid-year meeting coming up June 14th and 15th, 2018 in Dillon, Montana. They will be discussing all things impacting the ranching and livestock industry as well as public lands issues. If you're interested in getting registered and attending this must-attend event in southwest Montana, the mid-year meeting for the Montana Stock Growers, all that information can be found online at MTB. Well, Ethan is on the phone with us here today, again with the Public Lands Council. Ethan, how are things going this spring in the Beltway in Washington, D.C.? You know, things are as interesting as they always are this time of year here in Washington, D.C. Lane. This is the time of year where uh, Capitol Hill tries to figure out how they're going to fund the government for another year. You know, those, those fights we see with the appropriations package uh, uh, six or eight months after the end of the, the actual fiscal year um, typically start about now. This is when they start building out those bills. So, you know, for those of us that want to make sure we get some work done there, this is when we can make sure that our priorities are in the base bills that are coming out of these committees. So um, it's it's green light time around here for us, just making sure that uh, we get those uh, open gates closed for ranchers across the West and uh, make sure our priorities are taken care of. Ethan, one of the more recent developments and information that the Public Lands Council is really, uh, they're putting out a call to action to submit comments on proposed sage-grouse uh, plans. Let's talk about the recent uh, release of the state-by-state -state draft environmental impact statements for these resource management plan amendments and why public lands ranchers and uh, private ranchers should really be paying attention to this. You know, we, we have been hammering on the Department of Interior since these, these sage-grouse plans came out back in 2015 that they needed to spend more time listening to the states and listening to local voices on how to get this conservation done in a way that doesn't impact ranchers and landowners in the process. Uh, Secretary Zinke and his team has, has met that request. They have released some draft plan amendments, state-specific, and, you know, it's kind of a catch-22 because 
they went to those states and, and basically said, hey, what do you need out of this process? What are you hearing from your folks on the ground? Obviously, they talked to stakeholders like, like the Public Lands Council and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association as well, uh, American Sheep Industry Association, et cetera. Um, but, you know, they really leaned into that to that uh, request that we made that, that they go to the states and they seek their guidance there. So what we have coming out of this process now is kind of a mixed bag. You know, we're seeing some states that got a lot more on their list, and that's because they had governors that were really aggressive in pursuing those things. And then we have other states that essentially sent the message to the Department of Interior that, hey, we don't need a whole lot out of this process. You know, Montana being one of those, Oregon being another. Um, you know, the secretary told me that everybody asked for something um, it to, to be changed in the plan. So anybody who's who's uh, uh, telling you that they're they're you know that these plans are perfect and everybody thinks they're great, every single state asked for something to be changed in, the, in this process. The the key now is to make sure those local voices are heard during this comment period. We're going to be submitting comments and and voicing our opinion at the national level, but like I just outlined. You know the, the the voices they are wanting to hear from are, are folks on the ground. So uh, while while we'll certainly hit those top level issues that are kind of common to all the plans, it is critically important that those state level voices get on the record here and get on the record in numbers. Because like we always see with these kinds of public processes, you know the radical environmental groups and the, those fringe groups that are trying to to put us out of business come out in droves for these kind of comment periods. So they will be sifting through an overwhelming amount of uh, uh, not entirely factual comments sometimes uh, uh, talking about how great the sage-grouse plans are in their current form and how there's no need for change. So it's critically important that we get out there and make our voices heard in this process. Now, Ethan, uh, the feedback uh, will go until August 2nd, I see here, uh, from a press release that the PLC has put out. But what are maybe some of those outliers and some of these plans that maybe should be startling to producers out there in the West? Do you have any of those off the top of your head? Sure. Well, you know, the, the, the battle that we've been fighting for the last few years now, obviously, we're continuing to fight, and that is over that habitat objectives table, table 2-2. In the in the BLM plans, um, you know, it, it's it's the table that gives us that seven-inch stubble height uh, that is not a requirement, but has been interpreted that way by a lot of field staff on the ground. Um, this is a problem we've seen impacting uh, forest planning, BLM planning, permit renewals, uh, both in the Forest Service and BLM side. And you know, they've dealt with that in different ways in different states. Uh, some states are going to see changes to the t to the habitat objectives table right in the plan. Others, you know, they're going to work on ways to, to deal with it in, in, in less, uh, uh, less complete ways. So it's important for your state to take a look at that plan, make sure that the way they've interpreted that habitat objectives table works with your state plan, gets, gets you to where you need to be as, a, as an industry, you know, in, in your state to, to, to not be held up by arbitrary grass height requirements. You know, we're, we're seeing the, the science on this come out. Uh, Dave Noggle right there in Montana has been doing some of the uh, tip of the spear science on this and what we're learning from that science is that there is not a correlation between grass height in the early season and nest survival. So you know all of this fixation over the last 20 or 30 years with, with grass height in the sage grouse debate really comes from some bad measuring practices and the way they were doing these studies. And I won't go into all the details here but to su suffice to say that the new science that's coming out now, university land-grant university research, is telling us that correlation is not what we thought it was. So, you know, our feedback to the agencies has been, hey, get away from this from this bad science 
and let's make sure we're doing what we need to do to protect grouse habitat from fire and invasives and things like that. And the best way to do that is make sure ranchers keep ranching. So we want to make sure those voices get out there. And we want to make sure that, that they hear loud and clear that, you know, in those areas that they dealt with 2-2 properly, thank you for doing that. And in those areas where they fell short, they need to hear that this does not get us where we need to be. Now, Ethan, we will continue to talk about the sage-grouse plans and the role that ranchers, landowners, and public lands grazers play in helping uh, preserve this bird across the West. So thanks, thanks for talking a little more on that, but also a very big issue across many states in the West is, of course, the big issue of addressing how to manage feral horses. They, they're not being managed. We can all say that. And my family has horses. I've grown up horseback. That's how we ranch. We take care of our horses. I know what a healthy horse is. I know what a sick horse is. I know what native rangeland should look like and the health of that rangeland as well. The Public Lands Council, ranchers, and those across the West that understand there is an issue that needs to be resolved in looking at these feral horses and the health of our rangeland and these horses themselves. Uh, the BLM just uh, put out a report to Congress that has been uh, long awaited no doubt. What was that report and what were some of those options they put forth to Congress to help address the feral horse issue? Well, you know, you're, you're right. This is a difficult issue. And, and I mean, I'm a lifelong horse owner myself, lifetime member of the American Quarter Horse Association. Uh, so, you know, we all in, in this industry have that uh, uh, horrible feeling in the pit of our stomach when we talk about this issue, because we hate to see animals cared for poorly, mismanaged, and, and, and we hate to see them suffering, which is exactly what we're seeing for 83,000 uh, feral horses across the West now. Uh, the report that, that we saw out of the Department of Interior here in the last week or so um, was a response to Congress back in the fiscal 2017 appropriations bill. And in that bill, you know, we hammer away at them every year to get this rider removed, this policy rider that's been in the appropriations bill for the last 10 years. And anybody with horses knows this rider well. I don't have to talk about it too much, but it essentially prevents sale without limitation. So, you know, the BLM can't gather these horses and get rid of them um, when they have excess population um, without those, those recipients basically guaranteeing that they're not going to do anything that would result in those horses' destruction for commercial purposes. So, you know, it's a sticky subject, but the reality is for those of us that, that, that care for animals professionally, it's part of the business and it's part of the job. Unfortunately, we have a real emotional uh, group of advocates on the other side of this issue that have really vexed the Department of Interior and Congress because they turn out in numbers. Uh, congressmen and senators start getting calls on this issue from outside of the West on January 1st every year, and I mean by the thousands. So they hear from people in the Midwest, they hear from people on the East Coast, you know, they hear from people in the cities. And so they're trying to balance what they know is the reality on the ground for those of us that are seeing this issue firsthand with this overwhelming public opinion that's frankly just not well informed. You know, we, we start by calling them wild horses, which is not an accurate term. There has not been a native horse in North America in 10,000 years. And when there was, it didn't look anything like the horses that we see there today. Uh, everybody knows uh, that, that's from the West that these horses came with the Spanish explorers. They, they spread through the, the, the tribal nations and, and, and made their way into popular culture and, and, and you know, became sort of the fabric of, of who we are as a, as a country. But they're not native, and that means that the range isn't designed to support them, and there aren't predators to, to keep them in check. This report sort of is BLM's way of saying, okay, here are the options we have. None of them are pretty. 
um, but you asked and we're going to tell you. So, you know, they basically list out as, as option one, full use of the Wild Horse and Burrow Act, which would allow them to sell without restriction, would allow them to manage the population. Um, and then a couple options that sort of go into various combinations of what they're doing now um, that's not working, but just kind of tweaking it and looking for different ways to do it. And then an option four, which focuses on permanent surgical sterilization of a large number of mares. So large-scale gathers, um, and, and those options three and four also, also have uh, the added um, uh, uh, option of, of paying people $1,000 to take the horses. And this is based on the math that holding a horse for its lifetime is going to cost the BLM something like $49,000. If, if you can get someone to take one for 1000 bucks, obviously you're coming out ahead of the game. You know, personally, I, I, there's a lot of emotion around that as well. People have strong feelings one way or another. We've seen a lot of different options like this get floated in Washington, you know, tax credits and different things for taking horses. I don't think it's the worst idea in the world. I just think we haven't quite cracked the code yet. Um, I can tell you, you know, for my family's operation in Arizona, a thousand bucks is not going to induce us to want to take a, take a Mustang off somebody's hands. So we're going to probably have to keep working with them to find a, a, a formula that fits there. But, you know, this is kind of showing that the DOI and, and the BLM is really trying to lay their cards on the table and say, look, folks, we've got a real problem here and we need your help to solve it. So, you know, the, the, the industry now, and I've just recently been made the chair of the National Rangeland, Wild Horse and Burrow Rangeland Management Coalition, which is all the groups that are working to get some responsible management of horses in place. So between that coalition and, and, and the ranchers, the ranching industry as well, we now have to decide if, you know, these are options that we can live with, that there's something there that we can work with. Clearly, we have been pushing for years for much more than what's laid out in this suite of options. Um, we think that the range needs that immediate attention. Um, but, you know, it's now on us to review these options, talk to the department, talk to the secretary, and see if there's some uh, nuggets of, of success we can, we can glean from this. Um, and, and, you know, we're still kind of reviewing those options at this point and, and talking to the different stakeholders involved to try to figure out if there's something we can, some hay we can make out of this process. Well, Ethan, uh, we're going to take a quick break and turn it over to Susan Littlefield with this quick message. But after it, I hope we can talk about the American Prairie Reserve and bison on public lands. Are you up for that? You bet. All right. Well, I'll turn it over to Susan. We'll be back right after this. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on the Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and other podcast apps. Now, back to the show. Returning back, our guest today is the Executive Director of the Public Lands Council and the NCBA's Federal Lands, Mr. Ethan Lane. Ethan, uh, how, how are things really going for you? I know you just had a little boy here not too long ago. How many months old is he now? He is eight months old, going on uh, 10 years. He's, he's, uh, the kid is just growing like crazy and eats everything we put in front of him, and uh, I'm getting a little worried personally. Well, I'm sure he will be uh, roping some steers here before too long and uh, and learning how to uh, talk issues just like his dad. And, and we are talking public lands issues today with Ethan. And one that is pretty familiar to ranchers in central and north central Montana is a group called the American Prairie Reserve. They have a pretty good pitch to wealthy donors and those that want to see the American Serengeti up in north central Montana where my family ranches. And they like to run bison and they would like to see free 
roaming bison someday. They're probably going to call me out on that and say that's not their goal, but it truly is. And the American Prairie Reserve recently is asking the Bureau of Land Management to change 18 BLM grazing allotments in Fergus, Petroleum, Phillips, and Valley Counties in Montana and change the class of livestock from cattle to bison, allow season-long grazing on those allotments and fortify existing external boundary fences and replace uh, the, the, the strands with electric and remove all interior fences. I've been around bison ranches before, and if you talk to those ranchers that raise bison, you have to manage them like cattle. There's a lot of red flags here, Ethan. What's your take on this? You know, th this is one of those issues that just makes my blood boil. I, 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 I've got to tell you, of all the, dish the issues we work on in D.C., this American Prairie Reserve thing um, is kind of right at the top of my list just because it, it's, it's all the bad things that we preach against uh, at the Public Lands Council and NCBA rolled into one package. You know, this really is uh, uh, this kind of utopian fantasy this group is pursuing of, of, of this American Serengeti, as you called it, which is exactly right. You know, it's funded with a lot of East Coast money. Um, they tilted up this uh, Wild Sky Beef uh, uh, affiliate that they're sort of using to placate the ranchers. And, you know, in their marketing material, they just flat say that. We're, we're trying to placate the local ranchers by, by doing this Wild Sky Beef. And, the, you know, the, the premise, which I know I don't need to explain to anybody in Montana, but for anybody outside that area, is, hey, you know, predator-friendly beef, if you're willing to accept this massive onslaught of predators, uh, apex predators coming off of our new uh, utopian preserve, um, you know, we'll, we'll have a market for that, for that beef since you're putting up with that. And, and apparently, you know, the hipsters in Brooklyn or wherever else are going to buy enough of that to make this worthwhile. Well, you know, this is just not a sustainable model. It doesn't make any sense. And, and when you get down to what they're asking for at the permit level, it's, it's really objectionable to all of us that, that fight hard for, you know, a little bit of room here and there to manage uh, properly our cattle and sheep operations. You know, bison, as you, as you rightly pointed out, require that same kind of management, and yet they've sort of been selling this bill of goods that you can that you can just cut them loose in three million acres with a fence around the outside and you know let's just see what happens well we just know that's not that's not the case it's not going to work you know we have centuries of research that even going back to the early native americans they were moving these bison from place to place and actively managing them so this is this is kind of the worst of what happens when you get east coast money flying out west to tell westerners how they ought to do things um, and unfortunately, it's something that's not going away anytime soon. We're going to have to keep pushing back on it. We're going to have to keep voicing our opinion. You know, obviously, Secretary Zinke understands this issue. It's right in his, in his home backyard. Um, we're going to keep talking to him and his staff about it as well. And, and, you know, the message we're trying to get across is that this is just flat not acceptable to be converting these, these, these permits into these year-long uh, uh, season-of-use uh, bison-specific uh, no rules, all hands-off permits. You know, that, that's just, that's not the way to do business. Um, it's, it's not going to get them what they want, and, and it's, it's simply not a responsible way to manage, manage the land. So, well, Ethan, you know, could you imagine if that was a cattle producer on that public land asking well, for year-round grazing? What would that, I mean, that would just create total chaos across the media. Well, it, it, it would, and, and, you know, taking fences down, and, hey, what I want to do is just kind of let it, you know, roll the dice and let's see what happens and let's let nature take its course. You know, that's that's just not where we are. 
I mean, we and, and this is something that plays into a larger issue that we talk about all the time with, you know, a lot of the same kinds of crazies, quite honestly, that are tied up with this. You know, they the APR would like you to believe they're just sportsmen and, and, and good old-fashioned, you know, uh, uh, lovers of the land that are trying to get something done here. The, the reality is they, they want to lock this stuff off just like a lot of these other radical groups do. You know, this biodome effect where, you know, you let nature take its course and you let the land heal you know, I've got bad news for those folks. We've been managing these lands for hundreds of years, and and there's really no putting the toothpaste back in the tube there. I mean, we're, we're down that road, and these lands now require management. You have invasive species. You have catastrophic wildfire. You have, you know, you have non-native species. You have cattle and sheep. You have people. You have roads. You have recreation. You have all these different multiple uses taking place in there. You know, it, it's just not... It's not acceptable or feasible for this group to, to waltz in with their checkbook from New York City and, and dictate to the state of Montana that this is how things are going to go. So we're going to continue to push back hard. We're going to continue to throw punches on this because, you know, this is one of those fundamental issues that's, that's just not one we can lose. Well, Ethan, again, for all of our listeners out there, for more on the Public Lands Council... It's pretty easy. Just follow them on social media or visit them at publiclandscouncil.org. Ethan Lane, the executive director of the PLC and the NCBA's Federal Lands, thanks for joining us here today. Any quick bit that you'd like to share with us before we sign off for the day? I'd just like to say it's always a pleasure to be on a podcast that's named after me. I just I think that's a real tribute, <laughs> and I appreciate it a lot. Well, I think, yeah, we should have had that in the intro. The, what, what should we call that? The the lane squared or double lane or the two lanes? Yeah. Two lane road. Well, my friend, it was great to talk with you here today. And um, we will have you on the program once again down the road. Thanks for uh, doing your part for our nation's public lands ranchers out in Washington, D.C. That's going to do it for today's LaneCast. I'm Lane Northland, your voice for agriculture. Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and NordlandCommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.